chairs to our right, and I'm going to ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to the end of Romans, to chapter 16. We are wrapping up Romans. Um, Paul ends his, uh, his letter to the church at Rome with a, a long list of names. We covered some of the uh, first of that list last week. We're going to pick up in verse 8, and I'm going to read through verse 16. Please stand in honor of God's word. <clears throat> Greet and now I was going to do this. All right. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Let's pray. Father, these names may be hard to pronounce, but they're no less real. They are real people, real saints, who even now are before you, just as we are. And we pray that you would work in our hearts to show us more of your glory, the glory they see even now, the glory of the gospel, the glory of the gospel that justifies us and sanctifies us and by which we are called and included among the saints. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Back when, um, uh, it was 1996, and uh, Kathy and Rachel at the time, um, we just said Rachel, we moved from Orlando, where I had finished seminary, up to Harrisonburg, and began an internship at Covenant Presbyterian in Harrisonburg, and that internship was supposed to be a year long, and I weaseled my way into a little bit of indispensability and got to stay. Um, so we're there in uh, these apartments in Harrisonburg, and there's uh, another family that lived across this courtyard and the building adjacent to ours. And, uh, and they went to, to um, the same church, and so we got to know them a little bit. Um, sadly, their, their family story did, did not end well. Um, he left, the husband left, moved to California. Um, he was a computer graphics guy and got a job at Pixar. Got a job at Pixar. And I remember, I, I mean, I guess it was Bugs Life or um, one of those early Pixar movies. Uh, our, our family, we were looking for uh, his name at the credits at the end. You know, they roll the credits and you're just going to tune out generally, um, whatever. Uh, it's a bunch of people that I don't know and I've never heard of, except it is fun when they do the Pixar babies, you know, at the end, all the babies that have been born during production of the movie. Well, this was different because I was looking for Patrick's name. Like, I know one of these people. There's a long list of names, but I know one of these guys and I have a connection to him and he's real and he's living and he's not just a name on a screen. And that's what these, these people are. 
real people, real names, you know, they're, they're not just or, uh, anonymous, they're, they're real, and they're, <laughs> and they're still living. Their souls, even though their bodies are in the grave waiting for resurrection, they are before the throne right now, just as we are. All the saints, you know, we believe that the church universal or Catholic in nature worships geographically and chronologically at all times and all places. And, uh, and, and God still, with all those people, he still does not get the praise that, uh, that he warrants. But let's talk about some of these saints. Way back in chapter 1, Paul began his letter by saying to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he wraps up his letter, kind of going back to that whole theme. These are all the saints. These are all those who are loved by God and called to be saints. And uh, let's meet some more of them. You know, we met a bunch last week. Uh, There's Ampliatus, and there's reason to believe that uh, this one who Paul says, my beloved, Uh, there's reason to believe that his name is inscribed on one of the catacombs outside of Rome. You know, nobody can be 100% certain, but it looks like the time that that catacomb began and uh, when Ampliatus would have passed away are roughly overlapping. And he was prominent uh, in the church at Rome, so who knows? But you can go today and see um, uh, an inscription in that catacomb. Uh, bearing that name. There's Urbanus and Stachys. Both of these uh, men have names that would lead us to believe they've got a slave background. Maybe they're freedmen by now. Uh, but Paul, you know, honors them as fellow workers, uh, those who, who he, he loves. Uh, there's Apelles. Uh, he maybe has had some kind of testing of his faith, some trial that he's been through. He's approved in Christ and uh, and that's, that's a, a thing to note. And then Paul moves on to those who are uh, in the household of Aristobulus. And this, Paul's not greeting Aristobulus himself, but the household. And that's not just, you know, wife, brother, sister, kids, nieces, nephews, etc. These are more like everybody in the household. And this would include, again, servants, slaves, uh, people who were under the employ of, uh, of this household. And this is one of the uh, prominent households in Rome, and the thinking is that Aristobulus was related and connected uh, to Herod Agrippa, if you know any of the, the history of the different rulers back then. Uh, probably, you know, you, you know the name Herod, so there's Herod Agrippa, there's Herodion, uh, the next person Paul greets, a kinsman, he's Jewish. And, um, and it wasn't uncommon if you served in a household under, you know, the master, you would take on that master's name if you were a servant. So the house of Herod, Herodion, uh, probably another freedman or uh, slave person. Uh, there's the, the family or the house of Narcissus. Narcissus, uh, incidentally, was, we believe this is the same Narcissus who was prominent under the emperor Claudius. And Uh, Claudius is the one who expelled the Jewish community from Rome. Claudius died. Nero took power. Uh, It was good for the Jewish community. They can come back for Rome. Wasn't so good for Narcissus because Nero's mother-in-law or stepmother, somehow one of those roles, uh, did not like Narcissus, forced him to commit suicide. These are the historical facts of people that, you know, archaeologists, historians know. These, that, that's what's true of some of these individuals. We, we can't be 100% certain this is the same Narcissus or the, 
you know, the, the same characters, because uh, we don't have as much detail about who they are, but there's a lot of good reason to believe this is the same person. And these are the servants in the house of this prominent uh, man under formerly Emperor Claudius. Uh, verse 12, there's Tryphena and Tryphosa. Uh, fun thing to note about them, their names literally mean dainty and delicate. But Paul says they're workers, you know, so they're, even though their names may lead you to think something else about them, the truth is they, they res- they're respected because they work hard in the Lord. It's sort of like, hey, greet Buford and Cletus, uh, you know, really good rocket scientists. You really, it, it, so anyway, um, good way to honor them by re- mentioning the hard work they do. There's Persis. She is, uh, oh, uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa, they think, are twin sisters. Um, Persis is a, another woman who Paul mentions. She's worked hard in the Lord. Uh, she apparently comes from a Persian background based on her name. Uh, there's Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother. And uh, Paul says that Rufus's mother has been a mother to me as well. Uh, pay attention to the fact that in the book of Romans, Paul pauses to honor the ministry of motherhood, the ministry of nurturing, the ministry of caring, uh, and how much that has meant to him in support of his ministry. Uh, the scholars also believe that this is the same Rufus, the same, his same mother, who we meet in Mark 15. It's believed that the Gospel of Mark was written from Rome. People would have known exactly which Rufus and which mother uh, this was because Rufus's father was Simon of Cyrene, who when Jesus stumbled under the suffocating weight of those two wooden beams, uh, the soldiers conscripted Rufus's father, Simon, to carry the cross the rest of the way to Golgotha. Rufus and his family were chosen. They were special in that regard. And, um, and Paul wants to honor them. Uh, verse 14, a uh, bunch of fellows who are all, uh, have names that have slave uh, connotations. And the brothers who are with them, th- that's a reference to the, uh, the, the brotherhood that is with them. And the church at Rome was not, um, you know, the one mega church, uh, the first church of Rome. Everybody's gathered in the same place on Sunday. There were house churches scattered throughout the city. This is one of those house churches. And there's another house church in verse 15 uh, under the, probably the headship of Philologus, who means uh, lover of the word. So, and finally, all the saints you know, who are with them. And that's really what we're talking about. There are all these saints that you meet in Romans 16. And you might be tempted to think, well, this is just like Matthew chapter 1. You get to that genealogy and you go, all right, I just want to skip to the baby. Um, you might think, well, this is just a bunch of names that I don't know. Let's skip this chapter and move on to 1 Corinthians. Uh, but that would be a mistake. These names remind us that we are part of a great assembly of saints. I believe in uh, the, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, that you and I are, much, are part of something much, much bigger than just you know, the 150-odd people here. Um, let's talk about some of the groups that are mentioned here as well. Uh, we, last week, we looked at uh, the, some of the women, the significance of Paul mentioning these women uh, in, in Romans. Um, and 
What's significant about that is that back in the first century, the gospel was, was challenging this, uh, this abuse of, uh, of authority or, or male distinctiveness um, and uh, giving honor and reminding uh, people that men and women are made in God's image and uh, women have so much to contribute uh, to the ministry of the church um, and only together can we truly image and be a reflection of God. So that was the, the gospel's challenge uh, to society in the first century that you know being male isn't all there is. Um, and in the 21st century, we might say that the gospel's challenge is, isn't so much. I mean, there are occasions when the gospel needs to address the abuse of authority among males. Uh, the gospel's challenge to the 21st century, as we were looking at pretty intently last week, is not, not the uh, abuse of these distinctions, but just ignoring them altogether. Uh, the gospel would say that gender matters. Uh, the gospel would teach us that, that gender is part of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And, and how do we do uh, gender in a way that's governed by the gospel? Um, you can you know, look at the recording from last week. So there's um, a group of women that are there. They're a prominent group. Uh, another couple of groups that are prominent are, uh, as we've seen, some of the names have Jewish backgrounds. Most of the names have uh, Greek and Roman backgrounds. So there's a strong um, uh, two-thirds, three-quarters of the, the people that Paul mentions come from a Gentile background. It's just another way to say non-Jewish background. And that they are just as much saints as those who come from that long uh, ethnic history that dates all the way back, you know, to Abraham. That you're not an MVP, you know, if you have Jewish bloodline. Uh, you are all considered one in Christ through Christ's blood uh, rather than Abraham's. And, uh, and then there's another group, these slaves and freedmen who are prominent. Uh, another another uh, couple of names in verse 22, if you've got your Bibles open, you meet uh, Tertius, who Paul, uh, it was Paul's scribe. Um, Paul is dictating the book of Romans, and Tertius is a um, has a slave background, perhaps he's freed now, but he's obviously been educated, and he is Paul's scribe. And then you meet a guy in verse 23 named Cortus. Um, what's significant about their names? Well, Tertius is, uh, his name really means third in, in Latin or Greek or whatever. Um, his name means third, and when we think of like somebody who's tertiary, they're, they're third in line. Uh, Cortus, he's the fourth. And so if you think about these slaves... Um, you know, you've got Persis, who is, we know that she's Persian because of her name. Well, what her name means is that her master, in her household, she was literally just called, hey, Persian girl, Persis, come here. Or for Tertius, hey, number three, come here. Hey, Quartus, number four, come here. Um, how would you like to have a name like that? Hey, thing one, hey, thing two, come here. And what the, what's beautiful about the gospel is Paul, again, affirming not only those who have, you know, nobility and high rank. Uh, Phoebe, apparently, was a very prominent woman, very successful woman. But there's also people who come from just absolute obscurity. People whose names mean nothing. But through the gospel, uh, they get even a new name is what we're promised. When I was in, uh, when I was in sixth grade... Believe it or not, as a sixth grader, I was a little self-conscious. 
And with a name like Essen, uh, it was just not a happy elementary school experience. You know, I was the guy who had that name. And it was easy to, to, to pick on me, make fun of my name. And in sixth grade, I changed my name to Jeff. <laughs> I, I was Jeff. And not, not Joff, as in G-E-O-F-F, -F, to be sophisticated. Just good old-fashioned Jeff, J-E-F-F. Because I, just want, I didn't want people to pick on me. I didn't want to have an unusual name. Um, and I, I wanted a new name. I wanted a new identity. I wanted to be transformed. I wanted people to look at me differently, think of me differently. I wanted to be esteemed differently. I wanted to be accepted. And all that had to do with my name. If you're in Christ, the gospel gives you a new identity. Literally, we're promised in Revelation a new name that God knows that he's going to bestow on you. You have a new name. You have a new identity. This is what these, these little gimmicky stickers are about. Your name is on this. And you're called a saint. A saint. This is what it means to, to be honored by God, accepted by him, included in him. And to get a new name, one of these days that name's going to be different. It's not going to be Essen. Oh, incidentally... In 11th grade, I switched from, um, from the school I was attending to uh, Princess Anne High School, and I changed my name back to Essen. Uh, because by that time, I was smart enough and wise enough and savvy enough to know that chicks dig something different. Um, <laughs> and that's how I met Kathy. Um, Anyway, some of the groups that you, that you meet here. Um, house, house churches are, are evident there, too. Groups of worshipers uh, meeting at Priscilla and Aquila's house, uh, meeting under the household of uh, Asyncretus and Philologus, etc. Um, so these, these, these are some of the names that, that uh, we run into. Um, so what does it mean that we're, we're meeting these saints, that we're talking about these saints? Uh, I want to switch gears and talk about what does it mean to become a saint? Um, that sainthood is something that's bestowed upon you. And then we grow into that sainthood. It's bestowed and we grow. And, and there are two sides of the same coin of what does it mean to be a saint. When, when I say saint, who do you think of? What kind of person come, comes to your mind? Probably when you think of a saint, you might think of um, you know, somebody who culture recognizes their, their sainthood, you know, St. Saint Teresa, St. Saint Nicholas, St. Augustine, St. Elmo, whoever. Uh, maybe when, when you think of a saint, you think of somebody super old, super spiritual, um, super religious, you know, super good. Uh, so so th that's our idea of what it means to be a saint. Um, almost we think of them in the past, we think of them as ancient, almost maybe even extinct, like sainthood. Is that even relevant for today? Is it, when Paul says all the saints in Rome, well, sure, that was 2,000 years ago. There aren't any more saints. Well, yes, there are. And, and furthermore, when we think of saint, we, we generally think of individual saints. We don't think collectively of the saints, unless you're a New Orleans fan, then you think of the saints. Uh, but we don't generally think of the saints plural. We think of individuals. And, um, and there's some ways that the gospel pushes up against that, challenges our notion of what does it mean to be a saint. 
So to be a saint, you've got to talk about two things, as I've mentioned. One is being set apart. It means you're a holy person because you have been put in a new category. God transitions you from being um, sort of a citizen of the world to being a citizen of heaven, to belonging to the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of God. And that's a category. You, you get put in a new category of people. It's a special category. It's a holy category. And that category, that group of people is dear to God, beloved by him. And so the one side of the, the saint coin is a category. And the other side to the saint coin is your character. Because generally when we think of a saint, we don't think of a category. We think of somebody being good or moral or of good character. And that, that's true. But it's the result of something that happens previously that we're going to talk about in a second. So there's two sides to the saint coin. On one side is your category and the other side is your character. And how do you become a saint? How does this work? Um, and when we're talking about saints and talking about people who have been set apart, they're special, they're valuable, and they're, they have some character to back that up that proves that they're in that new category, does that describe you? Could it be said of you that you are a saint? Is your name tag accurate? Mine says Saint Essen. Some of your name tags say Saint Virginia. St. Jess, St. Josh, St. Joe, St. Geraldine, St. whatever. Is your name tag accurate? Or is it saying something that's not really true of you? Here's how we know. For starters, to become a saint, the first thing you have to acknowledge is I can't do this alone. Nobody becomes a saint by themselves. We think of saints individually. We think of saints solitarily. And we think of them as kind of self-made holy people, really rigorous, really hardworking and determined to be as spiritual as they possibly can. And the first thing we've got to get in our heads is that you can't be a saint by yourself. To become a saint means that you move from one category of human beings to another category of human beings. And that fundamentally happens because of Jesus. And what he did to, to make us saints, sainthood is something that's bestowed on you. You were given this name tag. It was given to you in the foyer. You didn't earn this. I know it would have cost a lot. Uh, nonetheless, you didn't earn it. It was given to you. It was a gift. So, uh, like, think of, we've all been to graduation ceremonies, and that's, that's kind of what's going on uh, in our lives right now. So if you were at a graduation uh, uh, especially uh, a college, big college graduation uh, or a university setting, generally what will happen, uh, if they get a really prominent speaker to do the commencement, they will give that person an honorary degree, an honorary doctorate, um, which is what uh, President Trump came, and he gave the commencement at Liberty University, and they gave him an honorary doctorate. He didn't do anything to earn that. It was a gift. Here's, here's your, we, we consider you uh, to, you know, we want to bestow this, this, uh, this title on you and so on. Now, what would happen if somebody received an honorary doctorate? So there's another guy, there's actually a world record for honorary degrees conferred on a person. 
and uh, he's a priest. I think he might have been like chancellor or something of Yale. I can't remember exactly. But literally, he received 150 honorary degrees. That's a lot of commencement addresses. Um, he's busy. He's on the circuit. Um, and nobody, he's not going to say, yeah, I earned all these. Any, any person who's sane is going to say, you know, yeah, this was gifted to me. Hey, I'm, I'm honored to have the title, but guess what? It's a gift. It was given to me by, you know, the good people at this university or that college or whatever. And that's the way it goes with the, the, the title saint, because you're moved from this category of sinner, uh, kingdom of darkness, kingdom of this world, to saint, kingdom of light, kingdom of Christ. And that happens because you receive this title, this, this nomenclature that deems you holy, based on the work of another. Based on the work of the one who Peter confessed in John chapter 6, you are the Holy One of God when pressed by Jesus. The same Jesus who the demons, even when Jesus just came into their presence, the demons would scream out, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. They know who he is. Peter knew who he was. And this holy one of God, who never ever sinned in his entire earthly life and who deserved to go straight into the presence of God, into the the holy presence of God where there's absolutely no sin, where there's absolutely no um, pollution, he went straight in, uh, instead of going straight into the presence of God, he went to a cross. And Paul tells us, uh, Paul told the Corinthian church that for our sake, he made him who had no sin to be sin. He made the one who is the Holy One of God to be as a sinner, to bear our sin on the cross in order that we might become the righteousness of God. And so in order to become saints, what had to happen was the Holy One of God came down from heaven, walked this earth, went to a cross, and took our sin upon himself and then put his holiness onto us. That's how you and I become a saint. Sainthood. The doorway to sainthood is called justification. It's this act that God declares you are holy based on the work of another, based on your trust in Jesus. And it's important to understand, what does that trust mean? Uh, We were talking about this in the adult discipleship class. There's a difference between just agreeing with the fact that Jesus is the Holy One of God. You know, the demons would shout that out. So they understood who he was, but they weren't trusting in him. They could agree with that, but they didn't believe in that. And so for you and I to receive sainthood means that we rely on the holiness of Jesus, his sacrifice for us, in order to take our sin away and to receive that status and be accepted into the kingdom of God, to go through that doorway where we receive that status. It's given to us. It's bestowed. It's given. It's, not, it's a gift. Uh, I like how Thomas Merton put it, that a saint is not someone who is good, but someone who experiences the goodness of God. Let me unpack that for a second. Not someone who is good, but someone who experiences the goodness of God. And basically what is going on here is a saint is not someone who is good as though he was trusting in his righteousness or her righteousness. 
Not someone who is good and trusting in their own righteousness, but someone who experiences the goodness of God and trusts in his righteousness. Who experiences the love of God through the cross, what Jesus laid down for you, for me. It was God's love that did that, his goodness, and we experience it and we trust in that. That's how we become a saint in that category. And then we got to talk about not only is sainthood something bestowed, but it's something that we grow in. Because there's another side to the saint coin. That's how you, you enter and then we become what we are. We become what we are as saints. There's this whole idea that a saint is not someone who is good, but someone who experiences the goodness of God. A saint is not someone who ignores what is good, but someone who is transformed also by the goodness of God. And uh, back in the third chapter of Romans, Paul says, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's how you enter into God's presence. That's how you move from that category of darkness into the category of the saints. We are justified by, apart from works of the law. And then he asks, do we then nullify the law by this same faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. And so the whole question really needs to be, why does God justify us? Why does he bother to gather to himself this entire category of people called saints? What's the point? Peter answers that question. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a nation of saints, people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's, that's why he gathers this whole category of human beings and calls them saints. It's for a purpose. It's so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us and saved us. And we proclaim that with our lips and we proclaim that with our lives through the transforming work of the gospel in us to sanctify us. Uh, I like how, you know, in a couple of verses here, if you've still got Romans 16 open, look at verse 19. Paul says that your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Is that true of us? Is that true of you and of me? Is our obedience known to all? Do people look at you and think of you and you go, you know, that person is wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil? In 1 John we read, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. I like how John uses that language of practice. A saint is not somebody who gets it right every time. Yes, we're trying to see our character transformed, you know, and we're entering into our saintishness as we're growing into that. Nobody gets it perfect. It's practice. And at the end of the day, you know, our our works, the things that we do, the goodness that we choose over evil, that is what is going to confirm that we have been brought from that one category to another. The interesting thing is that you can't do this alone either. We can't become a saint by ourselves and we can't grow into a saint by ourselves. It takes the Holy Spirit 
the holy making spirit to make us holy. And it takes holy people around us, the communion of saints, to help us grow and to learn what does it mean to follow Jesus. I need to learn from other people's examples. And so you cannot do discipleship in isolation. You and I need the church, the communion of saints, in order to grow as saints. Now, ironically, uh, let me mention one particular application here. What does it mean to grow in my saintly character? Ironically, one thing is, is very, very beautiful about sainthood that is ignored. It's not, it doesn't feel natural. It doesn't come easy. And it's very counterintuitive. But one of the most powerful things that you and I can do as saints to demonstrate our saintishness, to grow in holiness is to confess our sins. Wait, I thought saints don't sin. Well, yes, we do sin. And and when a saint confesses his or her sins, what, what they're recognizing is that I can't, it's not my job to project this image of a shiny halo and I never stumble and I've got it together And isn't it great to follow Jesus? And if you could just get your act together and follow him like I do, you'd be fine too. All we do, if I know I've sinned, if I know I've messed up, if I've offended somebody, and if I, (laughs) the last thing I want to do is admit that. Uh, I would much rather, you know, hide it or deflect it or forget about it. But when I do that, all I'm doing is I'm not demonstrating sainthood. I'm demonstrating hypocrisy. Because people see our tilted halo. And they see the dirt on our robe of self-righteousness. But when they see our confession, when they see our, our owning our mess, when they see us admitting that I wasn't acting very saintly, would you please forgive me? What they see then is not so much my holiness, but they see my reliance on the holiness of Jesus. Uh, and they see his righteousness rather than my self-righteousness. And it's a beautiful way to show them the mercy of God in Christ. And in showing them that, they see the holiness of humility in me. So it works, works both ways. And that's one of the beautiful ways that we can embody saintishness. Uh, we can't do this alone. Um, like we just said in verse 16, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Um, you know, back to our name tags. If you've got a name tag, it says Saint Essen or St. Joe or St. Mary on it, if you don't have a name tag, if you missed one, I hope you're thinking, I really want a name tag. I really want one. I want, I want something that says that I'm a saint. You might not have thought of this before, but you're a saint if you're in Christ. If you don't have something that proves that you can get it on the way out. But guess what? You don't just have a name tag. Turn to the person next to you and look at their name tag and their name and, and the, the title belonging to them, Saint so-and-so, right? You're not the only saint in this room. Everyone else who believes in Jesus and who's been brought from that one category of sinner to the category of saint through his blood and they're growing into their saintishness, they're saints too. And, I, you know, uh, we just got done watching, again, uh, in the adult discipleship class, this conversation about justification. And Kevin DeYoung's talking about when he does wedding services, he'll remind 
the bride and the groom, and we're taking these beautiful vows that are impossible to keep. But we remind them, look, you have been accepted by God on the basis of his grace. Don't base your acceptance of your spouse on their works. Treat your spouse the same way God treats you. If you rejoice in the fact that he loves you and, as a saint, and, and you know, Paul says this in uh, the beginning of Romans, like I said, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. He says the same thing in Colossians. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, God considers you holy, he loves you, and he considers your neighbor holy and he loves them too. So how do you treat a saint? How, how would you treat St. Teresa? How, how would you treat Billy, Billy Graham? You know, respect. You'd be, you'd be mindful of your words. You'd be mindful of your actions. You would realize, I'm in the presence of someone who's holy. It matters what I say. It matters what I do. And it matters what you say, and it matters what you do around the saints around you. The saints in your home, you know, if you're married, if you've got kids, if you've got parents, the saints in your dorm, if you've got roommates, friends, the saints in your classroom, the saints on your team, the saints at work, the saints at the pool, the saints, you know, wherever. You have to treat them the same way God treats them. And I have some really, really bad news for you. Horrible news, horrendous news. You're going to hate this. What happens when saint so-and-so isn't acting like a saint? Then what? You don't get a buy. Just because so-and-so isn't acting like a saint doesn't mean you should stop acting like a saint. That's, that's, that's exactly the time when your saintishness is going to be tested. That's when it needs to, to become more robust and stronger and more beautiful and more pure. As you rely on the righteousness that you have through Jesus, that's where you get your acceptance from. That's where you get your approval from. You don't need it from this person who's not treating you well, and so you just move in and you try to love them. And you try to remind them of this, the holiness of Jesus, his love, his truth, his grace. And that's how God relates to us as saints. Grace and truth. You can tell a saint the truth, but tell it in love. And you can show a saint grace, and they need to be responsible and accountable. It works both ways, but when we do it governed by the gospel, we enter into this whole dynamic called the holy kiss. So we're going to stop, and we're going to end the service, and we're all going to kiss each other, and uh, we're good. Uh, What's the holy kiss? I mean, they used to do that. They still do it in Eastern cultures, right? You know, you meet each other and you give a little peck on the opposite cheeks. Um, and you can do that if you want, but good strong handshake's good too. Um, what, what do you need to embrace and believe when you're about to give somebody a kiss of friendship or affection? You have to love them. It's hard, it's hard to kiss somebody when you're not on good terms with them, right? The holy kiss. It's God's reminder to us. Treat each other as saints. Pursue one another as saints. Forgive one another as saints. Ask for forgiveness as saints. And let your whole life 
being a holy kiss. Let's pray. Um, Father, uh, what can we say to your gift that you've lovingly and graciously bestowed upon us that we would be called saints, that we would be called children of God? Uh, we thank you. And we give honor to Jesus, thanks to him. Uh, it was his work, it was his holiness uh, that he accomplished so that we could receive that status, um, that acceptance. And I pray for any here this morning who are just maybe connecting those dots for the first time, who, who want to be saints, uh, who want to know that you are pleased with them. Um, Lord, would you help them to trust in Jesus, not just to agree, but to believe and to rest in his righteousness and his forgiveness. Lord, would you help all of us uh, to grow into our, our sainthood? Uh, Lord, would you help us to say no to sin and yes to holiness? Would you help us to choose what is good and pure and beautiful and praiseworthy? Would you help us to ask forgiveness when we choose what is not? Would you help us to extend forgiveness when others around us choose what is not? And by your grace and to your glory, would you let our lives demonstrate what a holy kiss looks like? We pray in Jesus' name.